to the book of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43 through 48. I, um, again, am very thankful to stand and uh, to take this sacred desk. This is not a form I take lightly. Very thankful for the brothers having me here, Uh, Pastor Nick and Pastor Russ and Pastor Steve. Um, Very, very thankful for the opportunity. If you have your place in God's Word, Verse 43 of chapter 5 of Matthew reads as follows. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you not even do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity and this time to uh, walk through the gospel so that we can be conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of this gospel because it does wash us, it does conform us, it does sanctify us as we study it. We pray, God, that at this time that every heart, that every mind would be attentive unto the gospel. We pray that you would give us sight to see and ears to hear. Father, I pray that as I seek to uh, espouse this gospel, that you would grace me, that my pride, that my thought, that my mind would not interfere with Jesus being high and lifted up. And we thank you for all these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we pray, Father, that it be done for your glory and for our joy. For truly, Father, you do all things well. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's sermon will come to you by way of a question. Love my enemies? It is a question that every believer is called to ask him or herself. Our key words today for those who are taking notes, worshipers in training, is enemy, love, and grace. Oftentimes we are consumed with personal life goals as we seek to advance in this world's system. Along the way, we get to many points where we find opposition. 
in the workplace, we find opposition from those who would seek to not have us there, seek to have us removed, seek to have us fired. For those who are in school and high school, there are those who uh, bring opposition against us, who want to make us feel less than inferior, as if we will never compare to them. For young men in high school, it is always the football athlete who is very well built, who is very muscular, who is very athletic, and all the guys seek to be just like him. For the young ladies, many a time it is the prettiest cheerleader who is most popular. For the adults at work, it is the co-worker who it seems that no matter what we do to live out the gospel with them, many times it just doesn't seem to work. And for some of us, it is found in the opposition of family and friends, those whom we were once close to those whom we once confided in have now seemingly placed the most opposition in our lives. We often, as the gospel would lead us to know, would make very emphatic statements that as Christians we still love these people. We still love that individual that is causing us most grief, most heartache, and who raises the most oppression and opposition against us in our lives. We say, yes, I love them because it is the Christian thing. Yes, I love them because Christ says I must love them. Yes, I love them because I am a believer. But as we study the text today, it will go far beyond a statement. There is much agony and much suffering that is involved in the love of our enemies. In the text that we have before us, Jesus, as he is uh, listing the Beatitudes to his disciples, he gets here to the stage in verse 43 where Jesus quotes the traditional view of the Jews. The traditional view of the Jews, as is related in the Talmud, was that we are to love all Israelites. We are to love all those of the nation of Israel. But their view became flawed after that. They saw that it was equally so that they could hate their enemies. They would seek to distort the text that is found in Leviticus chapter 19, where God tells them that they are to be most affectionate, most compassionate towards Israel. They would seek to distort the passage that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that tells them not to allow the Amorites and the Moabites into the congregation of Israel. But as they read forward in Deuteronomy chapter 23, they find that God tells them to not hate the Egyptians, for you were sojourners in their land. God never commands them to hate anyone. He commands and makes much of love amongst Israel, but at no point does he command them to hate anyone. 
But through rabbinical discussion and interpretation, Israel had now, through the tradition of their fathers, come to a point where they see in and of themselves that they will love Israel, but they will reject anyone that was not inherently Jewish. If you would, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 10, and verse 25, as we will walk into the text. This is a story that we've all heard. It is the story of the Good Samaritan. This is a clear depiction as to how Israel saw the commonwealth thereof and the remainder of the world. In verse 25, the scripture says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, speaking of Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring, verse 29, to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he sat with him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay to you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This was a clear depiction of how Israel saw the barbarian, how they saw the Gentile. We will love Israel, because it was commanded by God, but to the rest of the world, we will pass over. Jesus uses two individuals in this text. He uses the priest, who would most assuredly be most compassionate, right? For he understood that in the atoning of Israel, how much compassion was needed, how much compassion and mercy and forgiveness God gave Israel, so surely he would be most qualified to exhibit compassion amongst this man who by no fault of his own was robbed and beaten within inches of his life. Surely the priest would, right? But the scripture says he passed on the other side. Well, here comes the Levite. 
born into the tribe of Levi, who was cursed by his father Abraham, or did not receive the blessing of his father Abraham because of his hot-headedness. The scripture makes it very clear that it was the tribe of Levi who was given to the service of Israel. Servants all their life. Surely those who understood their complimentary service to the priest would be compassionate, right? But the scripture makes it clear that they passed on the other side. And so now we get to the Samaritan who, by all accounts, according to the Jews, was inferior, less than. These are not individuals who stem from high priestly class of the priest or Levites or Levitical priesthood. But it was this individual that stopped and showed compassion. Jesus says, this is truly the individual who understands that this is their neighbor. So now that we have a clear understanding of Jesus's framework of teaching here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard it said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. This is the teaching of your fathers that you have heard in times past. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which is a complete distortion of Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Could this possibly at some point, at some time, have been our disposition of heart? For some of us, is this currently our disposition of heart? Quietly in the valleys of our mind. Do we really love our enemies and seek for their good and seek for their best and eternal salvation? Those who have brought great opposition against us? Have we immersed ourselves in prayer for their condition, for their situation, for their stand, for their life? Or have we colored it over with great statements like, well, I love them with the love of Jesus? Do we make blanketed statements like, I will pray for them, but we never do? Because I will surmise to you that before the end of the sermon, we will see that if we do not have a burden, if we do not have a compassion, if we do not have a drive to see that situation, those individuals reconciled unto Jesus, I will say that we are not operating as the scripture says, that is in love. What then is the model to determine how we ought to love our enemies? Is it a relative model where I love based upon how I've been taught or how I have allowed my mind to develop? Or have we in Scripture seen the height of God and how he deals with his enemies? Jesus will go on to command us to be perfect 
as our Father in heaven is perfect. So if or since, should I say, he is the high goal that we're reaching to, then we must search the scripture to define how God has operated with his enemies. If you would turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter number 3. And verse 20. This is the first upon many acts of rebellion. The scripture in Romans chapter 5 makes it very clear that we were here in Adam transgressing with him, rebelling against God. Adam, who was commanded by God not to eat of the tree. With his wife, they take and they eat, and in high-handed rebellion, they disobey What are they worthy of? What does the scripture say about the soul that sinneth? It shall surely die. At this moment, God in his holiness, in his justice, in his righteousness, Adam in his sinfulness, in his rebellion, in his high-handed treason against God, is worthy of one thing and one thing alone. Death. But the scripture says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then behold, God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now least he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Why doesn't God destroy according to Romans chapter 5, that while we were enemies, so it is very clear that we in rebellion and sin are enemies of God. In Romans chapter 8, it makes it very clear that the rebellious sinful mind is in hostile aggression towards God. Why doesn't God smite down his enemy at that point? Would he not be perfectly just? Would he not be perfectly Righteous in doing so. Would his holiness come into question? No. No, it wouldn't. Yes, he's still righteous. Yes, he is still operating in his holiness. How so? Instead of destroying his enemy, the scripture will later go and reveal in the New Testament that God pours out his grace upon this rebellious individual. How so, you may ask. Verse 21 makes it very clear. And the Lord God God made 
for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God, through sacrifice, covers their sin, which is a typification of grace. That instead of giving his rebellious son what he deserves, instead of giving this rebellious Adam what he deserves, God covers him with the skin of animals. God covers him. He takes away his fig leaf covering and he covers him with aprons of animal skin, signifying the grace to come. This is how God operated with Adam. He did not destroy him, but he covered him with the blood of animals, which will later be typified in the sacrificial system of Israel, which will later be revealed in the person and work of Jesus upon the cross. That God does not immediately destroy and wipe him from the face of the earth, but he extends to him what only he can. This was an act of grace. This was an act of grace. We need only flip to Genesis chapter 6 to see the increasing sin upon the earth. Well, what is taking place at this time? The hearts and minds and thoughts of humanity, the scripture said, was increasingly becoming wicked. So much so that it had reaped in the nostrils of God. And the hearts and thoughts of men were continually evil. What does God do to a world that is full of his enemies, operating in high-handed rebellion against him? He sends the herald of righteousness a man who in and of his own accord is not righteous because we will see after the waters recede. This is the same man who revels in drunkenness. And what does God do? Does he wipe out humanity? Does he destroy and cut off all lineage thereafter? He does not. He extends grace to Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives. And he takes two animals of every kind and he covers them and he holds them and he keeps them for 40 days and for 40 nights. Why doesn't God operate with his enemies in vengeance? We do see many times where throughout the scripture he does, but why doesn't he operate with all of us in the same manner, in the same likeness. Because as it was with Adam, he extended grace. As it is with Noah, a type shadow of the fact that God will save for himself a remnant of people who by nature, as we will see, are his enemies. He saves some. This is the operation 
of God towards his enemies. If you would flip with me to the book of Hosea. Chapter 2. Verse 16. In the book of Hosea, God sends the prophet Hosea to join himself to a harlot, to a woman of whoredom, the scripture says, to a woman of ill repute, to a prostitute. He sends this prophet to marry Gomer, a woman who is known for her promiscuous ways. He does this simply to reveal that in Israel they have also prostituted themselves. They have also played the harlot. They have also rebelled against him in every way to follow Baal, the Assyrian weather god. I can only imagine that they possibly did this simply because they thought that their crop and their agriculture would become more fertile and that their land and farms would be more productive. But I am also fully persuaded by Scripture that they did it because their hearts were sinful, that their desires were wicked. They, like Gomer, played the harlot with God, rebelling against everything that he had done for them formerly, And bringing them out of the land of Egypt, providing for them many, many days, making his power and himself and his character and his attributes known to them, to a nation according to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and and also chapter 14, a nation who did nothing to deserve God's covenantal choosing his election, but that God did it because it pleased him. And to this nation that he reveals his constant act of grace year after year, the grace that is found in the sacrificial system or the typification thereof. They now leave Yahweh to follow Baal, to play the harlot like Gomer represented. They had three children. I will punish you, no mercy and not my people. God begins to dole out or to state that he was not going to be their God in chapter one. That they were not going to be his people and that he would have no mercy upon them. Well, I am so thankful that although it represents Israel, it is a clear depiction of God's faithfulness and continued faithfulness to us. But in the most immediate sense, in verse 16 of chapter 2, 
The scripture says, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field and the birds of heaven and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy. I will betroth you in my faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Why doesn't God cut Israel off? It is because of, yes, his covenantal promises, but although they operated as his absolute enemies, turning from him, following Baal, worshiping him in everything that one could think of, from festivals to food offerings to sexual immorality in the name of Baal, They turned from God. In Exodus 20, he gave them ten commandments. And under the worship of Baal, they broke all ten. Why doesn't he destroy his enemy? Those who would operate as his enemy, should I say. It is because of his faithful covenant to them. It is because of his faithfulness to them. Did they deserve it? No, they did not. Did Noah deserve it? No, he did not. Did Adam deserve it? No, he did not. And so now as we will briefly deal with our text in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. We see that these enemies of God, Adam operating in rebellion, the entire world gone astray, hearts are absolutely wicked. Israel turns from God in every way imaginable. Yet God does not destroy in these three examples used here today. And so in verse 43, Jesus, of course, deals with the traditional understanding of the Jew, not by way of the scripture, but by way of rabbinical teaching. You shall love your enemies and hate, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. And we will pause there. How does it look to love our enemies? Is it that we bake them an apple pie? No. Is it that we buy them a heart-shaped 
candy or an edible arrangement. No. (laughs) But we love our enemies in the same way that God loved his enemies. Because he is the model that we are to follow. We are to extend to our enemies something that they cannot do no matter how much they try. They could never repay the offense, the opposition, the oppression that they may have committed. They can never repay for the transgression that they have committed against you. So how does, how must your love look? It must be a graceful love. It must be giving to them what they cannot work, earn, or deserve. It is the love of God that has been revealed to us that while we were his enemies, while we were weak and without strength, while we had nothing to give for the offense and constant offenses toward God, he revealed his loving act of grace in giving his son. So we then must, if we are going to love our enemies like God loved his, we must extend to them forgiveness that they can never merit, earn, or deserve that they can never work to repay the offense. This is clearly seen in the family member who molests and takes advantage of their nieces and nephews, sons and daughters, in-laws and cousins. How does that person forgive their enemy? Is there anything that offending party can say to remove that transgression and offense? No. Will I'm sorry ever remove it? No. Weeping at their feet, will it ever remove it? No. Like every other sin, the only way to love them and to overcome the transgression is to give to them what our Father has given to us. It must be a complete act of grace. Giving them what they can never merit, earn or deserve. And so that act of love, as Jesus says, to love your enemies is revealed, not just in making all of the right statements and saying that we will give them grace or that we're having much mercy on them and that we're having much grace and that we've forgiven them. While all of those statements are true in and of themselves, if it is not put to a united marriage with prayer, and seeking the eternal good of our persecutors, then it is not really love. It is not really grace. Now, in many cases, I am not so naive to think that there's not some difficulty that may come depending on the transgression. 
But I would simply say to you like Jesus, love them and pray for them. When we deal with the aspect here, when Jesus commands us to pray for those who persecute you, this is a tremendous undertaking. To pray for the individual who is out for your destruction. I know you want to destroy me. I know you want to see me removed from this place of employment where I can no longer provide for my family as I once did. For those children, as we constantly see, even on television today in Aurora, Colorado, various places around the country, for our young people that are in school, the bullies, pray for, my, pray for the person who's bullying me. For our adults, pray for the person who wants to see us destroyed at work. Pray for my family that really hates me, that have turned their back on me. And want to see my destruction? Yes. Jesus says, go to the Father and pray for their eternal good. That we are to bow in great brokenness for them. Well, what what is the model? Well, it is found in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, Jesus prays not only for those who are there with him at that point, but he prays for those that will come, you and I. But mind you, my friend, before we were believers, we were enemies and we operated in like manner. But he prayed for our eternal good, for our eternal joy. He goes on to say, Father, I also pray that where I am, they will be also my enemies. Jesus says, not only to love them and grace them by giving them what they could never deserve. He says, but be committed to prayer for them. Now, if you want to know whether or not you really love someone, if you want to know whether you really love that party that has offended you, will you in brokenness pray for their eternal good? Here's a question. Have you ever prayed for their eternal good? We know the story of Saul. As he traveled on that road of Damascus, a great enemy and persecutor of the church, dragging women and children from their homes, throwing them into prison, wreaking havoc and terror on the church. Armed with the decree to drag Christians from their home and cast them into prison, God, who by his sovereign choice chooses Paul at that point. I'm sure there were Christians who probably thought God could have chosen him a little bit sooner, maybe to overcome some of that persecution. But God chooses him at that point. 
It is in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 12, chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, that Paul says of himself that he was once a great persecutor of the church. But God had grace, had mercy on him. So we see that as we love our enemies and pray for their eternal good, we must understand something here, that it is from those individuals that God will choose to save some. We who were once enemies of the cross, before we became believers, we wreak great havoc and torture on those who were. But from that same group of enemies, God has chosen to save some, of which every single one of us, we were enemies of the cross. And so Jesus says to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. For what reason, you might ask, it is found in verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So you may look at, respond like our Father who is in heaven. How did he respond to his enemies? Well, I was a filthy, rotten, Nasty, envious, jealous, and hateful person before Christ. But I never stole, I never sold drugs, I never smoked, I never drank, never did all, well, yeah, never did all that stuff, right? Had no desire for God at all. Absolutely none. I was not raised in a Christian home. I did not have covenantal rights and blessings. My grandparents were uh, dealt in the occult, black magic. There was nothing about me that wanted God at all. But I am so thankful that before I was, he prayed for me. Christ interceded on my behalf before I was. That is how we love our enemies. It is through extending much mercy, through much compassion, through much prayer, and seeking of their eternal good. And in doing so, we imitate our Father. We imitate the work of Jesus. At Calvary, where God intercedes for his enemies in crushing his son. Isaiah makes it very clear in chapter 53. that God did not even look upon him. He was crushed and he was bruised 
in every single way. And he bared our transgression in his body. He, having all power, having created all things by him, through him, could command all things to stop. But he endured and he was faithfully obedient unto the point of death, even that very, very terrible death on the cross. For who? His friends? Every single one of his enemies that he would, and he did choose beforehand to be his sons. He died for every single one of his enemies that he has elected and he has called by his grace. He died for every single one, signifying. the point of our fervent and effectual prayers for the lost, for our enemies, for those who produce great opposition against us. Like Adam in high-handed rebellion. Like the entire world whose sin was grievous in the nostrils of God like Israel, who rebelled in every way to follow Baal. We are to operate with that mindset. So at that point, we can look like Jesus. In verse 45, God who is absolutely righteous, who is absolutely holy, The scripture says, so that you, believing one, may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, who makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Wow. He even, in his righteousness, extends a measure of common kindness common grace to his enemies, those whom he have and in time will call, and those who will face eternal condemnation and destruction, God still operates with a common kindness towards them. Do you operate this way towards your enemies? Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So there is a sense of identification where there is a worldly view of love. We see it all the time. I often go into urban neighborhoods as I witness and give the gospel proclamation. And it is very interesting to see some of these things. If you see an individual who is a drunkard, 
he is rather quick to share his liquors of sort with the next drunkard, and they have a party. I have been in many scenarios where individuals have been in the process of doing drugs. And it is very interesting how quickly they will share their drugs with one another. You see this operation even amongst the most depraved of our society. They have the succinct understanding that if we are friends, we will share everything, we will do everything together, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Don't necessarily have to be godly to do that. That is not necessarily a view of your godliness because you share, because you do, because you serve those whom you love. It simply qualifies you to be a vengeful and wrathful tax collector, and it qualifies you to be a sinner, a tax collector and a Gentile sinner. That's what it qualifies us to be. When we simply forgive and love those whom we like and whom we want to hold friendship with. But what makes us like the Father, what makes us like Jesus is that we're willing to go that far as a work of the Holy Spirit, yes. We are willing to go that far even with our enemies and the desire to seek for their eternal good, constantly loving and praying for them that they might know Jesus and in the meantime doing all we can to serve them and be for their good. And as we operate this way, I am so thankful that in verse 48, it says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So it doesn't alleviate any of the responsibilities that we have to our enemies and to the lost. When the command for us to be perfect, as is also found in First Peter chapter 1, is a definite statement, we are to be perfect. We are commanded to be perfect. Well, I can't be perfect. Well, I understand that, but you're still commanded to be perfect. Well, there's no way I can be. Yes, I understand that, but you're still commanded to be. So then the question is, well, then how do I become perfect? Well, you can't. Because all of our perfection, all of the righteousness to fulfill verse 48 is found in Christ Jesus and him alone. And since it is found in him alone, he says now, love your enemies and pray for them. This cannot be worked out in the rebelliousness of our flesh. It must be worked out in the grace that has been extended. In the person and work of Jesus, through the means of grace thereof, that we have received from God, in his beloved and dear son. To the believer, if you have enemies, 
those who are not so kind and those who don't seek your eternal benefit. The scripture now commands you to seek theirs. To the siblings who have been in rivalry for the last 10 years, God commands you to love them, to pray for them, to reach out to them, to give them the gospel and seek their eternal good. To the person who has been overtaken in some sense of family transgression, God commands you to love them, to pray for them, and seek their eternal good. To the husband and wife dynamic, those walls that have been built up, God commands us to love them and to seek their eternal good. You would say, well, a husband and a wife, they don't hate one another. Well, it only takes to sit in a few counseling sessions to find out there's a lot of that. But he commands you to love them, to pray for them, and to seek their eternal good so that you may be children of your father. Not that at that point you become children of your father, but so that you can exemplify your new nature. And that is as a son and as a daughter of God. And to those that are lost, you are enemies of God. And God has extended his grace in the person and work of Jesus. And he commands you who are enemies of the cross to repent and to believe that he is the only one upon whom God has given to take away your sins. And in doing so, he has promised to give us, you, his righteousness. So as I stated, the message comes to you today in the form of a question. Love my enemies? Yes. And not only that, pray for them effectually and fervently and be for their eternal good. Just as God was in Christ reconciling us unto himself. And I'll close with this. The great encouragement that I have in the gospel is no farther than a mirror in my restroom at home. I look at an individual who by nature was wrathful and disobedient, myself. I look at a person who post the cross at times can get very cantankerous with the gospel and not always submit and not always obey. And you know what? He continues to pour out grace upon grace upon grace because of the work of Jesus. When you say that I cannot, James, love that person because you just don't know what they've done to me. I'm so thankful that when the law came, it showed how sinful I was and sin became exceedingly sinful according to Romans chapter 4. But I am overjoyed and elated that where sin did abound and increase, grace abounded more. God will give grace to forgive our enemies 
and to love them like he has loved us because at that point can we reveal to the world in a shining example that we are children of God. Love your enemies like you have been loved, former enemy of God. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you for your love and for your grace upon us that while we were weak and without strength, with no ability in ourselves, handcuffed and bound by sin, no thought or desire for you, day by day living in sinful wickedness, you loved us and revealed your love to us in the person and work of Jesus. Father, we pray that as the gospel has been proclaimed, that a high and lofty view of Christ has been shown in the scripture that he has forgiven us. I pray that by your spirit where there are bondages of your children today who don't know how to forgive that person or to love them or to pray for them much, I pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you will cleanse them via the gospel from all of those bondages. Father, I most fervently and compassionately pray for the lost because they are your enemies. And like Jesus, I pray that all those you have given will come, that you would allow them to see in this message that they are enemies of you. And it is only through Jesus that they can be made anew, that they can be reconciled, that they can receive forgiveness. Father, I pray that we never are the same again as it relates to our enemies and our call to serve and to love them. Help us to make much of Christ. And I pray, God, that all of these things be done for your glory and for our joy. For truly, Father, you do all things well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.